we're doing Genesis, and I need you guys to know that just this chapter in Genesis, we're going to do five chapters. We're going to try to do five weeks, five chapters, and just chapter one has taken has taken more work than anything I've ever prepared for for this church. I'm just going to go and tell you guys, it is super difficult. Um, we we easily one of the things I'm finding out is we get frustrated or confused um, by Genesis one and two a lot, and so it it, it just takes a lot to to figure out what to say and what not to say. And there's going to be so much more that I'm not going to say than I am going to say. And I would encourage you guys, I'll direct you towards two different resources. There's a lot out there, but two that I think are really trustworthy. One is this. I brought this up here specifically. This is a giant Bible, not to impress you, but to, this is called the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. I think it is the best study Bible. Used to be the Archaeological Study Bible, and then uh, they made some additions to it. Now it's called the Cultural Background Study Bible. I think as far as study Bibles go, it is dry. It is not going to be like devotional for you, but if you want to study this or or anything, um, I highly recommend this as a study Bible. The other resource is a book um, by an Old Testament professor named Sandra Richter, Dr. Richter, called Epic of Eden. Um, and it's a fantastic book, not just about Genesis, but about how to understand the totality of Scripture in light of the Old Testament. It's, it's, um, it's academic, but I'd say it's accessible. Uh, so I, I'm for real, I'm not going to be able to cover even close to everything that we could talk about in Genesis 1. Um, but those are good resources to, to fill in some gaps. Um, so, all right, so I'm going to read to you guys from Genesis 1. We're just going to read the chapter because it's, I couldn't figure out where to reasonably cut it off. So I'm just going to read chapter 1, and then we're going to look at a few things. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathering waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the, and let there be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give them light on earth to give light on earth, excuse me, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water team with living creatures and let the birds fly above the sky across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teams and that moves about according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the sea, and let the birds increase in the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. 
And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kind. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was said, God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was said, God saw that all he had made, God saw all he had made and it was very good. When there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. That's a lot. And again, we're not even going to touch it. If you want to get the best joke I heard, there's lots of jokes out there about Genesis 1. Best one I thought I heard was that the only day, so if you mark it, the first day is Sunday, second day is Monday, Tuesday. That's that's how most um, scholars and, and historians tend to mark it. Um, Monday is the only day where God doesn't say it's good. So you have that in common with God. So if you want to if you want to mark that up, uh, there are there are actually historical theological reasons they believe he did that, but it's interesting enough. Uh, so enjoy that. Um, so like I said, this is a big book. It's a it's a, a book that uh, just this chapter um, has so much in it. Um, that that's incredibly difficult. One of the reasons it's difficult is that for probably about the past 150 years, prior to that, this still happened, but it wasn't near as common. But but for the past 150 years, uh, for a variety of reasons, people in culture have approached Genesis 1 wanting to ask how questions. How did this happen? How did this thing that we see in nature correspond with this thing that we see in Genesis, right? But But Genesis 1, for the most part, isn't a how chapter. It's not really talking about how things. It's, it's really talking about why things and, and who things and, and what's the essence of things. Um, and, and it's important to recognize that going in. I, I was talking to my kids about this book uh, this week. And, and one of the things that I said, and then my wife said, you have to explain what that means, is that context is of the utmost importance when reading the scriptures. And, and, and what that means is this, the, the scriptures should be read within the context of why and how and who wrote them. And, and that's incredibly important that, that most of the problems that we have with the Bible come from not doing that. There, there's this thing called the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of biblical inerrancy that you'll hear about if you're in a, a church like ours. We, we believe in it, but the doctrine of inerrancy actually applies only to the scriptures in their original language, in their original context. And so a lot of the problems people run into with this idea of the doctrine of inerrancy is, is, is not doing that. What, what people will often say when they're not 
looking into the context is I don't want to add to the text, right? So, so what happens is you get this reflexive response to people saying, well, in context, and the people respond to that saying, well, well, you're just trying to, you know, pull some wordplay on me. But, but, but when you say, I don't want to add to the text, when you, when you don't properly understand the context of a text, you're automatically adding your own personal context to that text. That is a lot of stuff and feels like maybe I'm doing this. But, but essentially there's this, there's this sort of phrase that they teach you um, sometimes in seminary and it's a text without context leads to a pretext. It means it leads to whatever your personal agenda is being enforced on the text. And I think this is the reason that Genesis 1 and 2 have become so problematic for people. These are critical passages to our faith that we struggle to read and interpret. And the first reason we struggle to read and interpret them is that this is this this text is as old as is almost anything that we have in our culture. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, and 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 they're in a genre that again, most people who study this for a living and have made their lives studying this would say this is a genre that we can't fully understand or even identify. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just outside in a lot of ways of our understanding. There's historical stuff and there's geographical stuff, but there's also stuff that is poetic and, and rhythmic. And, and that's incredibly difficult for us to understand because we don't have that kind of text. We don't have this kind of text. But but even so, these are foundational chapters for us. So where do, where do we go? Sandy Richter, I told you guys about her. Uh, Dr. Richter says the most critical question of proper Bible application is this. Can we identify what the original biblical author is trying to communicate? Dr. Richter says this is who is placed under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So we need to ask the question, what is the author trying to say to me? Not, what do I want to know? So, so to ask Genesis 1 and 2 to address modern biological, evolutionary, or, or genetic understanding. I, I talked to somebody about this this week. It, it's like asking the Declaration of Independence to talk about Facebook. Or it's like asking Homer's Odyssey to talk about flight patterns for world travel. The, the, the text doesn't even, it's, it's not even that the text doesn't care about those questions. The, the, the text is not even aware of those questions, not because they aren't currently important to us, but because they didn't exist in the world of the author or the recipients. They weren't questions that they were asking or trying to answer. And that's not the same thing as saying God doesn't care about those questions. So I just want to be clear. I'm not saying God doesn't care about those questions. I'm saying the Bible and specifically Genesis 1 and 2 are, are not at all interested in those questions. What Genesis 1 and 2 are doing is they're telling creation accounts. And, and the accounts are different. You have to acknowledge that. The accounts are different. People try to do a lot of calisthenics to make them not different, but they are different. You'll read them. We'll read them for the next this week and next week, and you'll see uh, that they're different. And sometimes these accounts seem to contradict each other. But in the context of the Bible, it's not uncommon for significant historical recordings to have two versions. Right, Exodus 14 and 15 both tell a version of the crossing of the Red Sea. Judges 4 and 5 both tell a version of the story of, of the takedown of, of this king named Sisera. And, and what you see in those versions is that, is that one of those is historical and one of those is always a song or a poem that, that is expressing more the meaning behind the event than, than the actual event. And if you try to dissect 
those those poems or songs historically or scientifically, it, y you'll end up in absurdity, right? At one point, Deborah says that the stars came and attacked Sisera. And if you try to say like, well, does she really think stars came? No, of course not. But then at other points, she talks about chariots that, that were there. And, and so when we try to narrow in on things like that, it, it becomes uh, difficult. And, and that's especially important in, when we read Genesis 1, because Genesis 1, if you didn't notice it when we were reading it, is that there's this really strict structure, right? It only talks about certain things. And that structure is like a rhythm or like a song. It has a refrain. It has a chorus, right? And there was evening and there was morning and God saw that it was good, right? And, and, and there's a parallelism that we'll talk about in a minute. It's a tight story. And, and the second account, Genesis, Genesis 2, four to five, I think is where it starts, begins a narrative that actually runs all the way up through Genesis 11. And, and in Genesis 1, God is referred to as Elohim. That's a broad understanding of God. It's a distant understanding. In Genesis 2, God is referred to as Yahweh Elohim. That's a personal and covenantal and Hebraic understanding. In Genesis 1, God creates with the verb bara, which is almost exclusively in historical uh, language reserved for deity. But in Genesis 2, God creates with the verb yetzar, which is used of, often of craftsmen or artists that are forming a pot or a statue. And in Genesis 1, humanity is at the end. And in Genesis 2, humanity is embedded. So over the next two weeks, we're going to look at those things and we're not going to ignore them or why they're there. But today, a few things I want to say. Genesis 1 is saying some specific things to people that are not in their own land, that are wandering, that are in exile, depending on when you chart the beginning of this story, if you chart it with the writing down or with what was probably the telling, they're either wandering through the desert or, or they're in Babylonian exile. And in this, there's lots of gods and, and there are lots of, of thoughts on gods and what gods are like and what they do. And, and so when we ask what the biblical author is interested in in Genesis 1, we have to set ourselves in that context. And we have to look for what the patterns are, the messages are, and the priorities are. And what we see in Genesis 1 is this seven-day structure of rhythm and song and poetry that is crowned with rest. So really quick, I'm just going to tell you guys five things about this passage, and then we're going to try to apply them. I know you're like, really quick, five things? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bear especially for somebody who likes to talk a lot. So first thing is this. First thing we see is in the beginning, God created, right? And here's, here's what I would tell you. The phrase in the beginning actually means at some point. Um, again, this is the conversation we get into time and the structure of time and whatever. But, but a lot of times um, in old, in, in, not just Old Testament literature, but, but historically in that literature, uh, it was only when something had function that they said it began. It could exist without function, but it's when it had function that they would say it began. So, so in the beginning means at some time. In the beginning, God created. Here's what the author seems to be communicating. There's one God that stands outside of creation, and that God made creation with purpose and intentionality. And that's a big deal in, in the culture that the author was speaking into. Basically, it's saying God is over creation. God is not in a battle with creation. A lot of early origin stories, especially in, in the Babylonian uh, empire, were about some sort of battle, and the earth accidentally was created out of these battles. 
right? And, and, and Genesis is saying, no, that's not the case. That God purposefully and intentionally stood outside of creation and made creation. And then another thing is that we're not pantheist. God is not part of the creation. We are thankful for things like the sun, moon, and stars. We don't worship them, right? And that, and that we may be like, duh, but that was a huge deal to them. Second thing is this. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's all the light was good. Separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The world is not a result of chaos. The world is not random events that spilled out. The world is the result of God's word, right? God spoke. God, when God speaks, it has action. Uh, Tim Keller said, I can say, let there be light, but then I have to go turn on the light for there to be light, or I have to ask someone to turn on the light to be light. God didn't say, let there be light. Hey, angels, flip the switch. When God speaks, actions follow. The world and order are the result of God's words. You can see why this would be important to the Hebrew people right? And when God speaks, order comes into chaos and light comes into darkness. And it begins with God speaking. Order and light begin with God speaking. Third thing is this, and this is probably the biggest thing that we miss a lot of times about Genesis 1, is there's this thing called parallelism. If you, if you remember what that is, if you know what that is, and it is that you see these patterns of connection. And what you see is day one and day four are connected. Day two and day five are connected. Day three and day six, especially 6a, are connected. They follow these rhythms. How do the days relate to each other? One through three create three habitats, right? Day and night, sea and skies, and dry land. Days one through three create habitats. Days four through six create inhabitants for the three habitats. So on day four, what does God make? Anybody? Sun, moon, and stars. Where do the sun, moon, and stars live? In the day and the night. Day five, what does God make? Anybody? Fish and birds. And where do the birds live? See in the skies, right? She had to. She's listened to me talk about it all week and for my whole life. By the way, this was Jane's idea. So if you like it, I was smart enough to marry her. If you don't like it, take it up with Jane. Um, and then day six, day six A, or what does God make? Animals that walk around on the ground. Where do they live? They live on the ground that God made in day three. And so there's this parallelism that exists, right? You would wonder, why are they, why do they order differently between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Because Genesis 1 is trying to tell these people, God is careful, caring, involved creator. And by the way, if you're stuck in a desert or you're stuck in exile, don't forget God made a place for you and a purpose for you before he made you. You have a place and you have a purpose. Right? And then there's the climax of all the creating. 
which gets more attention and more words than any of the other times. And that's 6b, where God makes mankind. It says God made mankind in his own image. And that's humankind. It's, it's translated as mankind in the NIV, but it's, but it's humankind. In the image of God, and, and to emphasize it, it says in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And he blesses them and says, you're over all of this. What is God saying to these humans? You have a special connection to God. And it's not to try to get God on your side. It's not to try to appease God or keep God from being mad at you or to take care of all the chaos that God made. You have a special relationship connection to God and God gave it to you as image bearers. The, the biggest thing, the most important, the most loved, the most cared for, the most personal and intimate thing that God makes is humanity. More time, more verbiage, more celebration. It's very good, God says at the end of 6. Set apart to be the image of God and to rule over everything that came before. And this is the introduction of something that you have to understand if you're going to understand the Old Testament at all. And that's the concept of covenant covenant, right? The covenant is God's program of revelation is, is what scholars say. There are these five covenants that frame the Old Testament. We're not going to talk about all. It's the major unifying concept if you want to understand the Old Testament. Covenant is, is this Hebrew word, barit. I'm mispronouncing it for sure. And it's an agreement enacted between two parties when one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions. And it could be made from individuals all the way up to nations. And that's what you see more of in the Old Testament is this national thing. One of the things that makes a covenant different than a, than a contract, if you want to think about those as different, a covenant is a contract, but it's more than a contract, is that in Old Testament culture, family was of the utmost importance. And you can see that throughout. We won't talk a ton about that. But, but covenants created what they called fictive kinship, which meant a story of family beyond just being natural family. Can you see why this might be important to Highlands? Family of God, right? It, the, the closest we have to this idea, family that is created, is, is marriage or adoption, but it, but it was different than that. And, but, but it's the practice, this fictive kinship of covenant was what God chose to communicate relationship. And in Eden, we don't see it specifically. You see it specifically with Abraham and Noah. You see it specifically on down the line. But, but all the elements are there, right? The, a covenant took place between a stronger and a lesser kingdom for the most part. And, and the stronger kingdom, the superior, was referred to as the suzerain, and, and the lesser was referred to as the vassal. And, and in those agreements, there, there was an alliance for war and for protection. And, and if the ash, if, if the, the vassal, excuse me, the vassal had issue with another vassal, they would bring it before the suzerain. And, and you see this in, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, that, that the father, that God creates Adam, right, humanity to be the vassal kings of the garden in Eden and to ultimately colonize the world, to ultimately reflect God in the, and to be God's presence in the world. 
While it's sped more in Genesis 2, and we'll talk about that next week, the covenant is still initiated in Genesis 1. Humans become stewards of the earth, and they have dominion over the earth to fill it and to bring the kingdom of Yahweh, or to bring the kingdom of Elohim on earth. Right? The language between two kings having a covenant uses words like father for the suzerain, son for the vassal, and love because of this fictive kinship. And so Elohim is an ancient lord or king promising to his vassals the land grant of paradise, but they have to remain faithful to the agreement, faithful to bear the image and to be stewards. Okay, last thing is that on the seventh day, God finishes the work he's been doing. And on the seventh day, God rests from his work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all his work of creating. The week starts with God's word making light and the week ends with rest. And this was incredibly important for the Hebrew people. We'll see this with Sabbath throughout the Old Testament that God is establishing something and he's saying, part of being made in my image is making space to rest. And when you don't make space to rest, you step out of my image. And rest isn't sleep, but, but the word that used that was the word that was used for a king being enthroned over a peaceful empire. God saw that it was good and didn't have to do anything else about it. I wanna say one last thing that I didn't say real quick and then I'm gonna get into hopefully some quick applications. Is, is this, the idea that God made humanity male and female in his image and said to humanity, made them the, the image-bearing vassals who would steward and rule over things, the, the, the importance of that cannot be overemphasized in a society that was so patriarchal. The, the value of the author of Genesis. We, we just can't even imagine. I mean, we see down with the patriarchy and all this stuff in our society. We can't imagine what it was like at that time. We, we, we truly can't. And in a, in a strongly patriarchal society that the author of Genesis would say, you know what? In the beginning, God made male and female, specifically male and female in God's image and said to them, this is your job. And that in eternity, that was the way it was before, before the fall, before sin. We, we, we can't overemphasize it. We're going to talk a little bit about it in our application. So, so how do we apply this for the church? I would say for our church, I just don't want to say the church. I think it's the church too. But for our church, Highlands, I would say to us is this community where we are, planted where we are, that this is the concept that we need to hold on to. And it's in Ecclesiastes 4.9, it's the idea that two are better than one. That's not just about numbers, though it is. You can do more with more people. It's not just about procreating, though that's the framework for fruitfulness in Genesis 1. It, it can be expanded out. What it's about is the necessity of both community and diversity in representing the totality of our Creator. That God looked at it, it, it is as big a difference as you could make, right? Male and female, and said, you have to do this for this to work well. 1 Corinthians 12 says it more masterfully than I ever could, so I'm just going to read it. Start in verse 12, says this. 
Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. That was their big separations, right? So don't think about it as like, oh, only if you're a Jew or a Gentile, only if you're a slave or free. That's like, it's like saying, no matter where you are on the spectrum. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, listen to this, the body is not made of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? We have churches right now who, who say, if you're really a Christian, you've got to be an eye, right? And, and, and Paul says that doesn't work. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? Then we have churches that say, you got to be an ear. If you're really a Christian, you got to be an ear. This is what Paul says. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? This is a concept that we've so lost in, in our culture, in our churches, in our, in our society. As it is, Paul says, as it's supposed to be, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Because if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Screwed up my pages. Too many pages. That's the key right there. We're a city on a hill. Jesus didn't say you're a garden on a hill, right? Which is interesting. And, and, and our origin was in a garden but our destiny is in a city. And we'll talk a little bit about that next week. Gardens don't have to be diverse. They can be, but they don't have to be. Cities have to be diverse in order to function. And we will only truly find our purpose. We will only truly represent our faith. We will only bear the fruit we were made to bear and steward our community when we work together diversively and collectively. Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Thoughtful, committed. Indeed, she said, it's the only thing that ever has. You guys follow the GameStop thing these past couple of weeks? I don't know if you have or not. It's really hard. I'm not a stock guy. You can tell um, I'm not a financial guy. But whatever your feelings are about the event, I can tell you this. This was an otherwise unconnected group of, of randoms that had a common goal and a passion. And they found a way to gather, to discuss options, and to make moves that threatened to topple a giant. Whatever else you think about it, that's what they accomplished. And, and what I would say to us, our takeaway from that church is, yes, we, we are made in God's image. We, we are the body of Christ. Diversity of look, Thought and skill is our strength, Paul says. It's not our weakness. 
right? We have to stop being just like our culture and demanding uniformity. And we have to figure out how to understand that a foot's not a hand and we need them both. We don't have to agree all the time. We do have to connect and move together. And here's what I'm going to say to you. People want to join this. I, I don't know if you pay attention to what I do on Facebook. You probably shouldn't, but I, I dabble in this a little bit out there. And, and people want to join this. Look at the frustration and the confusion that exists as we look at our culture, as we look at our world and the inability to unify in a diversity of thought. It forces people into corners of ideology. It breeds extremism that, that, that is both in Christianity and in the world and holds the current culture in disbelief, cynicism, and fear. Most people want an alternative that they can't find. And a lot of them are beginning to believe it cannot be found at all. And what I would say is if we're going to embrace our calling church, we must believe that not only can it be found, but it is a must. That that is being a city on a hill in our culture. One more thought on this. In a redeemed family of God, our leadership is flat. Human hierarchy in any form is a result of the fall. And you'll see that. You'll see it expressly as we look at Genesis 2 and 3. That's a big statement to make, but it is. Though that makes it necessary in certain arenas. I'm not saying hierarchies shouldn't exist in a fallen world. They, they have to, right? Just as much as laws do in a fallen world. Until our full redemption. Even though that's true, these, these hierarchies need not and should not be a defining factor for the family of God in a community. Galatians 3, 28 and 29 says, In Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. All of you were baptized into Christ. Enclose yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. That we're all moving forward, and we may have different roles, but like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, one is not above the other. Robert K. Greenleaf in his classic book, Servant Leadership, if you haven't read it, I just gave mine away because Jane makes me give away books, and it's her fault. He says this, everywhere there is much complaining about too few leaders. We have too few because most institutions are structured so that they only have a few. Only one at a time can emerge. He goes on to say a particular strength of servant leadership is that it encourages everyone to actively seek opportunities to both serve and leave others, thereby setting up the potential for raising the quality of life throughout society. We're a city on a hill. And like the GameStop Collective, we are here, here to kill giants that oppress and leave out. Our community is stuck in the deep ditches of political partisanship, ideological, ideological extremism, and single-issue Christianity. Our community is disillusioned also with a professional version of church that has rock stars and spectators. Our response to these will not be hidden. It cannot be hidden, Jesus says. These ditches are not true to our origin in God's agreement. We have an opportunity and we have a responsibility as a church. 
And, and, and we can just as easily be removed from the blessing of stewardship if we deny our opportunity and our responsibility. We, we, collectively and diversely, we, the church in our community, are a city on a hill. And anything else is kicking against our design. And we need to move aggressively towards our garden selves, our city selves. And we need to speak out because like our image maker, our words have power. We need to share the truth and love about these false ditches that masquerade as truth. All right, gosh. Really quick, you don't care about the church. You just care about the fact that your life feels messy. Here we go. Us as people. Here's the takeaway. Nature is a choir. Nature is a choir. And the refrain of nature is our maker says we are good. We see beauty in nature. We just do for the most part, right? You're going to walk out here and be like, ah, the sun, right? You might feel cold. Some of you will love it. Some of you will hate it. But you look at a sunrise. The other day, Jane, yesterday, was it yesterday? You couldn't quit staring at the clouds, and I kept having to stop and act like I cared about them as much as her. Because the beauty that we see in nature, we love, but it's also incredibly difficult because our problem is we don't sing the same song as naturally as nature does. And nature doesn't always sing it either because of sin. Again, we'll, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But, but we can't sing the same song. And the reason we can't sing the same song is because we decided, unlike nature in most counts, we will be our own masters. We don't want to go under that song. We don't want to let God define us. And so we miss out on the benediction of God. It's good. It's good. God wasn't checking boxes and saying, all right, cool, that one worked. That's good. God was doing it like when I got my smell and taste back and I drank a cup of coffee for the first time. Sorry, Lindsay, if you still don't have yours. Oh, you're back good. And I was like, that is good. You know, that's what God was saying. That is good. Because we didn't want God to define us. In certain ways, we lost God's definition. We lost God's benediction, and we wither without it. And we're going to talk about that more in chapter 3. But this week, this is what I would say to you. If you feel like you're withering, if you feel like things are chaotic, if you feel like things are dark, first, to hear God's word bringing light into darkness and order into chaos is of crucial importance. The fact that you're here, the fact that you're listening, the fact that you decided to start your week, not by coming to Highlands, but by letting God's word speak light into your darkness and order into your chaos. Right? Jesus says, I'm the word, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the light. Inviting that back into your world is inviting God's definition back into your world. Second thing is this, community. It's not good to be alone. If you're going to experience God's benediction, you've got to live in community. God didn't just make one kind of person. The only thing you will see in chapter 2 that God says, oh, that's not good, is when Adam is alone. It's not good to be alone. And I'll say to you specifically, people online, you have opportunity to not be alone. No matter where you're at, we live in, a, again, a time where you can still be in community, and you should, and it's of the utmost importance. Third thing is this. 
You need to be in the places where things work rightly. And here's what that means. You need to get out, see the sun, see the moon, see the stars, right? Get off the computer screen. Get out of all of that. I'm not anti-technology. I'm, I'm engaged all the time. But, but I see and I notice those places, and you do too, when it's like, man, you got to go for a walk. You got to turn things off. And for you, if you're afraid to go anywhere right now, that, that's fine. Just, just get in your vehicle. Don't turn it on and look around out the windows. And, and ask yourself, what do I see? Psalm 66.4 says, all the earth worships God and sings praises to God in God's name. Creation is a temple. That's why God rests on the seventh day. You would have these rhythms where you would make temples uh, in ancient cultures, and, and you would make them, and then ultimately when the temple was ready, when it was complete, then you brought the gods into the temple to rest. And so there's this a little bit of rhythm there. But God says throughout the Old Testament, you're not going to build me a house. That's not what the tabernacle or the temple is for. The God's ultimate temple is creation. And God always finds rest in God's temple. And the image should do the same. We're created in God's image, but we're still creatures. We're still connected to the creation. We're not just consumers of it. And then we'll talk about next week, the idea of work and rest. That if we're fully going to understand God's benediction, that his creation is good. We've got to have a good relationship with work and rest. All right, I'm going to wrap up with this. It's 11.30. Here are discussion questions for you when you get out of here and online. One, what's the meaning of life? I, I, I'm telling you. I, I, I know it sounds silly, but for real, wrestle with it. Give yourself words or sentences or whatever. Spend time this week being like, if I had to answer the question, what would I say? Right? If I'm looking at Genesis 1, and I'm looking at my life, and I'm looking at my thoughts, and I'm, I'm trying to wrap those all together, what, what would I say? It's, it's the question, right? If we're sitting on a hill, we should at least have a sense of what we think the answer is. Second is this. Who is God inviting in to our community's purpose that you need to make room for? That you struggle to make room for? That's the other side of the image. That's a foot while you're a hand. And the last thing is this, where do you see nature reflecting God's purpose and or character? Where do you see nature reflecting God's purpose and or character? I got some good questions this week. Um, we're going to send the online people. Y'all are good. You can go off. I'm just going to um, hit a couple of things for people in this room. Some of the questions I got this week. Uh, the first question was around how um, do we do the science of uh, Genesis 1? And the short answer of that is that we don't because um, Genesis 1 isn't a, isn't a science book. Uh, Galileo um, had a great quote on this, and I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but essentially what he said is this, is, is that uh, the Bible um, is there to help us understand how we get to heaven, not how the heavens got to us. And it, it's not a scientific book. There's a lot of things out there there's, uh, that try to explain science within the Bible, right? There's this idea about, there's this thing called the gap theory, which is that a bunch of stuff happened between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. Um, and it's, it's fine. It just doesn't have any um, rootedness in, in the actual words of the Bible. Um, there's, there's this idea of literalism uh, that 
that there were seven literal 24-hour days, and then you sort of build out time from there. Um, I, I, I guess that's fine, uh, but it, has, it, it doesn't have anything to do with Genesis 1. Um, and, and then there's this, there's another idea called the geological era theories, which is the idea that each day represents a certain geological era. And, and that kind of got developed by people who are, um, who are pro-evolutionary biology. And we're trying to figure out how to help the Bible be pro-evolutionary biology. And what I would say to you is like, uh, I, I think those are good questions to ask evolution and, and how old is the earth? And uh, it looks, looks pretty old. Uh, but, but there's, there's a lot of good questions to be asked. It, it, it is probably not helpful. In fact, I would say it is a misapplication to try to ask those questions of Genesis 1. They just don't have anything to do with it. And, and so jump all over that. I love talking about science. I'm glad to talk to you about my position on it, um, if you would like, but it has nothing to do with Genesis 1. Um, so that would be my answer to that question, is that you can have all kinds of scientific beliefs and still value and believe in Genesis 1 as biblically inerrant, based on the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. Uh, the second question that I got asked this past week that I thought was relevant, um, and I'll stop with this, is um, if God made everything, who made God? It's the classic, right? If God made everything, who made God? And um, here's what I would say. And again, Genesis 1 doesn't care about that question. Um, here's what I would say just from a philosophical point of view. Um, philosophically, whatever we would call God, and that's just a word that we use to describe this, this being, um, that being is, is outside of the created universe. Because otherwise, if something made that being, if that being was created, whatever created that being ultimately becomes God. And you continue to work your way back and back and back and back and back. Uh, the, the best metaphor that, that I've ever been able to sort of wrestle with, and it's not a great one, is the idea of somebody who maybe creates a computer game or a sim city or whatever, right? They don't have to operate by the rules that the things within the game operate by. They're outside of the game. They, they, they created the game. And, and so if there is a God, that, that God exists outside of the laws of physics. Now, that God may choose to work through or abide by or not violate the laws of physics, but, but, but God doesn't have to be created because God, uh, again, is, is just allowed theoretically and philosophically to play outside the rules and, and, and has to play outside the rules in order to be God. Um, so that's what I would say. That's never been a question, an answer that satisfied anyone. Uh, <laughs> but it's an answer. Um, and it's the answer that, that, again, philosophically makes the most sense. Uh, so if you have other questions, um, I'm happy to kind of stand outside in this beautiful weather for a few minutes and answer some of those um, if you would like to talk about those. Uh, but that's that. That's it for me today. I'm going to pray and we'll be done. Um, God, first, uh, I just think about Genesis 1. It really is this beautiful, incredible statement about you and about us and about creation. Um, and I pray I did it even just a drop of justice today. Um, but but God, I pray for us, Lord, that as a community, we would be good stewards of, of what you've called us into. And then I pray for us as individuals that you would show us ways home. I mean, Jesus is the way home. But you would show us ways to Jesus so that we can come home that we can hear your benediction. That even with all the things that we know make us bad, 
that because of your son, you say it's good. It's good. I pray we would hear that. In Jesus' name, amen.